Hello and welcome back to Triathlon Science. Today's podcast is sponsored by Tri-Mechanics Coaching. If you are interested in running, triathlon or cycling coaching, then please click on the link in the show notes that will take you to an email address and you can get in contact to ask about our range of various plans, coaching, mentoring and that side of things. We're also sponsored by Black Cat Coffee. So I've taken the opportunity at the start of these episodes to talk a little bit about coffee, partly because coffee is or can be a lot more than the way a lot of us think about it. So not only is it nice to have a coffee roaster as a sponsor who provides some fantastic coffees for me and using the code triathlon10 will provide some fantastic coffees for you, but also it gives me an opportunity to discuss the interesting elements of coffee um, that take it to beyond something just to get you caffeinated in the morning. So I think back to even just a few years ago, I think my coffee tastes were always on the dark side of um, when, we call, when we talk about roasting. I remember being sat in a cafe in Annecy um, with my wife, Laura, and we'd, this was just before our son was born, and we'd driven out there all the way down to Annecy, and it was a fantastic holiday. Um, and we were sat in a cafe, and we were chatting to um, the guy that, that ran the cafe, um, who was saying about how he was, they, as part of the cafe, they, they roasted beans. Um, and I was chatting to him, and I remember distinctly saying how I, I, I roasted my own beans then, and I preferred a darker roast. I liked the kind of darker, richer, chocolatey flavours. And he was saying about how, you know, because at this time it was obviously, we've gone through this this kind of third wave coffee movement of going lighter and lighter. And he said how he was moving lighter and lighter on his roast that you could get more character and start to enjoy the flavours a bit more. And I remember saying, or I remember thinking to myself, that that's not really for me. I, I always found the lighter roasts too acidic, too tart, flavours that I, I didn't really appreciate. I essentially was overwhelmed by the acidity and that kind of sourness um, that meant that I never really got to enjoy supposedly what these these flavours, these flavour notes were. And I always kind of was slightly baffled at people saying they could taste this and this in coffee. And I was thinking, can't really taste any of that. All I can taste is this taste sour. Now, the thing about that is that there's two elements of that. One is that acidity, sourness, is a it's almost a subjective taste. It's an interesting experiment you can do with a lemon, actually. And it's a, it's a kind of well-known experiment, supposedly related to how you perceive sweet and sour and acidity. And I remember, and this is actually a subject we're going to talk about today, about diet and about fat and sugar and those things. I remember when there was this whole idea came out that if you were on a relatively low sugar diet and had a relatively low sweet tooth, if you eat a piece of lemon or put a piece of lemon in your mouth, it tastes relatively sweet because you um, you don't necessarily link it to that kind of acidity and tartness, but also because your tastes change. And that was the thing about coffee for me, is that I got overwhelmed by this acidity. So that's the first element of, of moving into coffees that are a little bit more flavoursome, that have these notes, is that you have to um, essentially train your senses to, to see past that acidity to be able to, to sense those other notes. But the other thing is, is how you actually extract the coffee. An under-extracted coffee, as we term it, or a coffee that hasn't been exposed to water um, enough in the right way and hasn't extracted the flavours, will be overridingly sour and acidic, and you won't get those flavours. So that is something that you can kind of research, learn about if that's something you're interested in. 
but we're already hitting nearly five minutes into the show and I'm still talking about coffee. Today's coffee that I'm drinking actually is from Black Cat and it is a beautiful Ethiopian. Um, what I don't even know how to say this. I'm going to try and say it. Um, Yura Jaffe... Okay, I'm not going to say it. Um, it's an Ethiopian coffee. It's a natural. I've never been able to say that word. It begins with a Y. I know exactly what it is. I just can't say it. Um, and it is a natural process and a relatively high-grown coffee. What do these things actually mean? So natural process is just the way that the coffee is processed um, on the farms or after the farms after picking. Tends to have They tend to have the more... Um, floral and sometimes kind of winier notes that fermented flavor that is a result of the coffee being able to being basically dried and allowed to kind of ferment a little bit as opposed to being fully washed which is the other way of kind of doing it is that you fully wash it get all the pulp off the outside and you're left with just the coffee cherry so if you're interested in trying some different flavors particularly through filter which is what i'm having this at the moment i'm using the clever dripper which i'm a real kind of fan of for these kind of coffees um, then something like a natural an ethiopian natural is a, a really good choice so on to today's episode. Today's episode is focused on fat and in particular the question do high fat diets or higher fat diets and therefore lower carbohydrate diets work for sports performance? So why am I asking or why are we asking this question now? I think it's because this time of year is the year where you start to see a lot of people asking this question. It tends to come up a lot on forums. If you frequent forums and you see these questions come up, they tend to come up around this time of year, mostly for two reasons. One, because we are deep into the off-season and most people have a grasp of understanding that if they are going to do any kind of, let's term it, fat adaptation, they're going to be best served doing it in the off-season as far away from their racing as possible. Plus also we're in this strange time where people don't know whether we're going to have a season, therefore people are thinking of longer term, they're thinking of maybe trying something different. The other thing is, is that most people will have gained some significant weight at Christmas. Unfortunately, I mean, we didn't really have much of a Christmas this year, but it's likely that most people will still have gained some weight. It's not something to be ashamed of. It is unfortunately the fact of what actually tends to happen. If you're in America, it tends to be the, the combined effort of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And in the UK, it tends to be the elongated Christmas and New Year period. We go through this phase where we enjoy ourselves a little bit more. We potentially do a little bit less activity. We're inside, particularly at the moment, we, we may not have done a huge amount other than be inside, really, because we couldn't really do a lot. And we often have ended up with a little bit of weight gain. And because there is this idea that low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets enable greater weight loss, then a lot of people are thinking, hmm, should I use it to try and lose some weight? At the same time, they come across things that say, hey, if you go on the ketogenic diet, you will unlock the power of unlimited sports performance. The problem is, it's not true. So I'm going to try and explain and go through the various different questions, the points that are often raised when it comes to this. But the first thing I must address is the massive elephant in the room. A lot of people that know me, that have known my history, that have known me for over the last five, ten years, 
will know that I went through this, that I was ketogenic for a long period of time, and that I did profess the virtues of the diet. I did believe it. I started off believing people like Gary Torbs as a good example, as a journalist who's written a terrible set of books. And I can only say they're terrible now because when they've been fully dissected in the aftermath, we've realised that all those references that he was discussing that, that led us in, that scientific minds like me looked and believed and thought, wow, maybe I was taught medicine all wrong. They were falsified. The conclusions that he drew from them were falsified and he continues to do this and he's become a pariah of the community because he continues to lie and that he created back then an incredibly emotive and um, a seductive uh, narrative, shall we say, that drew a lot of people in. It drew me in. It drew people like Stephen Guillenay. Stephen Guillenay is a fantastic researcher looking at the neurobiology of obesity, i.e. the brain's involvement in what we eat, and has an amazing book, one of the best books I've read on the subject called The Hungry Brain, which I think very nicely sums up why we have a problem with, with food in this modern world. Because at the end of the day, we were never designed to be surrounded by so much food, and we have a brain that is constantly trying to search for more food to help it survive. He was brought in by this. He was sucked in by this narrative. He believed what Gary was trying to sell. And a lot of people do. And people are still believing it now, and the arguments are still going on. The point being is that I followed this. And I'll tell you this, and I'll be completely honest. Being on the ketogenic diet, and fully ketogenic, makes you feel awesome. It really does. For a number of key reasons, particularly related to sport. Firstly, you lose a lot of weight. Now, is that real or is it fake? The first part is most definitely fake, i.e. when you go on a ketogenic diet or a very low carbohydrate diet, you strip your glycogen stores. Glycogen, your store of glucose or sugar in your muscles and in your liver, is a heavy thing because it is stored with water. So you get rid of the glycogen and the water and instantly you lose a few kilos. It is one of the main reasons why the low carbohydrate diet has an initial um, improvement in terms of efficacy against other diets is because they forget about this bit, it seems. But even if they do consider that bit, people tend to stick with the low carbohydrate diet for longer because they get on the scales and they see a positive benefit and they stick with it. So it is just human psychology. The problem is, as I say, it is fake. It doesn't last. But it does, as an athlete, and as a cyclist, as a runner particularly, give you this feeling of lightness. Muscles become less puffy because they are less full of glycogen. And you have this body change in, you know, you look in the mirror and suddenly you're looking leaner. Because your muscles that, as a cyclist or a, a runner, you don't really have much of muscle anyway. But they've gone a little less puffy and they seem to look a little bit more defined. Whether that's in your head or whether that's real, we don't know. But you you feel lighter. You suddenly feel this is working. The part of your brain that says that being a lighter athlete will make you faster is going haywire. It's saying, brilliant, this is fantastic. The other thing is that if you become ketogenic, so you are producing ketones, ketone bodies, 
from the fat that you are taking in, which happens within a few days if you go low carbohydrate enough, if not within a day, depending on who you are, they hotwire the brain. The reason that they are so important, it seems, for that function is that they are often produced, or they are produced in starvation. So if you don't eat for a day or two, you'll produce a lot of ketone bodies. They will supply the brain with fuel in the way that glucose normally would, the way that sugar normally would. And these also seem to increase your mental clarity. Now, this is the thing, is that some of these elements, some of these things like the ketogenic diet are very important for certain things. They are very important for epilepsy, potentially, um, in certain cases that's not treatable with medication. But also, they could be quite important for things like Alzheimer's disease. And that is an area that is being heavily studied. Can you give ketones? Can you give what's called medium-chain triglycerides, which are a fat that tends to be turned into ketones? And they will, and that's the, the fat that's in coconut. Will they help people with Alzheimer's disease? And I think they potentially can. We believe it may be related to the fact that when you when you have Alzheimer's disease, you don't process sugar in the brain the right way, a little bit like diabetes. It's kind of called diabetes of the brain. Therefore, having these ketone bodies that act in a different way but can still supply fuel to the neurons may improve cognition and function in Alzheimer's. It may even potentially reverse some of that decline that is seen. We don't know yet. The point is, is that when you are well, well and fit and healthy, having a big dose of ketones can give you this incredible brain boost. It is quite miraculous. This is why the whole bulletproof coffee thing, which is where you have a big dump of MCT oil and various butters and things in the morning, as opposed to, um, as opposed to your uh, cream or or milk or whatever you have in your coffee, um, and then have nothing else, became very popular. It is very popular and. Honestly, being on that, you feel fantastic. But let's take away the fact that feeling fantastic doesn't mean that your body is fantastic. It doesn't mean that you aren't accelerating heart disease. It doesn't mean that you're not causing problems, but you just feel fantastic. So let's get that out of the way. I did this and I went through it and I crashed. I crashed really, really hard in a number of instances. I crashed hard in races. I crashed hard, so hard in races I didn't know where I was, but I also performed well in races. There is a race that I did, Half Ironman, uh, about four hours, the Rubicon race, and I did that on water, water alone. Because it was steady state, because I'd trained my body to be able to deal with that steady state activity with, with no carbohydrates, and I performed very well. But in a Hillier race, I crashed so hard that I, I had no idea where I was, twice in relatively quick succession. And that's two races, not during the same race. But the other thing about it, as I say, is that you have, particularly obviously related to training, you have often this keto crash, which I've called, is that if you cut out carbohydrates, you normally get a few days of leeway. And those few days, as I say, you feel fantastic, you feel on top of the world, and then suddenly you crash because your glycogen stores have been depleted gradually, day by day. Now, the question is, can you replenish glycogen with fat? Yes and no. In theory, yes, through a very convoluted pathway where you convert fat to ketone bodies or a ketone body called acetone. And that goes into the Krebs cycle and that creates 
glucose through gluconeogenesis, and that can create glycogen. But it's a very convoluted system, and it is unlikely to happen in a non-starvation state. That's what it's there for. So even if you're taking in some protein, some carbohydrates in some sources, you're probably not going to do that. So you're probably going to gradually deplete your glycogen, and after a few days, you're going to crash. Now, the first question that I would like to, or the first myth I would like to dispel, is often something I hear banded around. Do high-fat diets or the ketogenic diets increase metabolic flexibility? No, they don't. It's often viewed as they do that, and they, in fact, they don't, because if you understand what metabolic flexibility is, metabolic flexibility is the ability to use any fuel source. Do we even not have it as an athlete? I'm not really sure, to be honest. We know that metabolic flexibility goes down significantly in disease states like diabetes. You become unable to use your carbohydrates properly, your fats properly, your flexibility, the ability to switch between the two quite easily and, and without providing or without dropping essentially energy levels is what defines metabolic flexibility. The ketogenic diet or high-fat diets, they just switch one fuel for another. So that's all they do. They don't enable you to essentially burn both fuels and switch between them very happily. They switch one for another. And that's what we need to bear in mind, that actually, unfortunately, fat, for most sports, and particularly your higher-intensity sports, is not going to be the preferred fuel. It is more uh, oxygen-essentially-dependent, it is essentially slower. It will not provide the kicks that you need to be able to compete and win a sport or these are essentially highly, highly aerobic sports. There is an exception. And the exception, unfortunately, has been so well studied with regards to this that it's been viewed as extrapolated to other endurance sport. And that is ultra running. Ultra running is a is a, I think you could view it in from one perspective as an odd activity, and actually you could view it from another perspective as being the only thing that humans are really designed for in the sporting world. We are designed to run long distances at a very relatively slow pace, to get from place to place, or to catch our food, or to do various other bits and pieces. The difference between ultra running and, let's say, a marathon, is actually things like the biomechanics of it, i.e. the knee drive as a good example. Ultra running is characterised by the fact that you are, you're not shuffling, because that I think is utter rubbish. You are essentially moving with a relatively low knee lift to not waste energy because you've got to conserve it over a long period of time. You're trying to maximise that recoil ability and not waste the muscle energy that uses up too much glycogen. In this instance, when you are not driving your knee particularly hard, you can probably get away with burning fat, and burning fat pretty much exclusively, and therefore being on a ketogenic diet. And actually, potentially for some people that find that during those races they cannot ingest the amount of carbohydrates that they would need to perform, although the the top elite, most of the top elite ultra runners are doing this as well, even if they are more fat adapted supposedly, like people like Zach Bitter as an example, who uses things like Mountain Dew and various sugary concoctions during races, you actually maybe don't need as much. But when you are, let's say, marathon running, elite marathon running particularly, the ballistic movement of the knee in particular, the knee drive, requires 
fast twitch fibers. It requires a significant supply of sugar and glycogen, which is why elite marathon running is a fight to get enough carbohydrate in to supply those muscle fibers to keep you going at that incredible pace. That is why elite marathon running has been using things like the Morten hydrogel carbohydrate systems. Now, whether they are better for the stomach or not, or all these various different things they might claim, their whole premise is to try and increase the amount of carbohydrates that you can ingest from the usual of 60 to 90 grams per hour to the kind of unusual beyond that of 100 to 120 grams. Now, the first thing to mention about that, we still don't know whether the limit of what the carbohydrates that we can take in during exercise that is supposedly around the 60 to 90 grams, i.e. 60-ish grams of glucose, 90 grams in total because you can take in a bit of fructose in this kind of two-to-one ratio, we still don't know exactly how trainable that is and whether that you can actually increase glucose transport because at the end of the day, these things... So when we are exposed to a stimulus, multiple things are happening. Things are happening straight away, and sometimes things take a lot longer to, to, to kind of get the wheels in motion. And that revolves around um, the stimulation of genes that then produce more proteins. And that can take a long period of time. So we don't know. We've often studied over short periods of time that you can get an upregulation in things like glucose and fructose, the other sugar that we tend to use in that transporters that increases your ability to take in carbohydrates from your drinks and from various things you're taking in. But we don't know the long-term consequences. We also don't know the genetic components in that athletes may be predisposed to having, you know, 60, uh, sorry, 70, 80, 90 grams per hour of glucose. They may be able to increase that beyond what has been studied because that's what makes them or part of what makes them able to do the sport that they do to such an incredibly high level. But we also don't know what happens if you chronically expose your gut to 90 to 120 grams beyond what you would normally view as being digestible. We don't know whether that then forces changes. It might change things like microbiome that can facilitate that. It might change the enzymes that break down the bound sugars such as sucrose, which is glucose and fructose together. But the point being is, is that we know now, the research is almost unequivocal. The more carbohydrate that you can ingest during exercise, the more performance you can generally get out of it, particularly as the exercise goes on longer and longer. So the idea of training your gut to increase your carbohydrate, in, uh, carbohydrate intake, particularly during, is actually potentially the most performance benefit that you can do and far outweighs what you could get from fat adaptation. This might only occur, or the fat adaptation argument, as I say, things like ultra running as an example, maybe because of the, the extreme length of it, but also if you have issues with digestion, if you have IBS or irritable bowel and various other things that cause that have more of a problem or cause a problem when you take in sugars, particularly fructose, you may need to move, shift more towards the fat adaptation side and try and gain some benefits from that side simply as a second option rather than being the primary focus. The other thing to bear in mind is that the best way to burn more fat overall, become more aerobically essentially able to burn more fat and become more fat adapted is to become fitter, become aerobically fitter. Develop your mitochondria. 
because when you do that you can burn more fats and more sugars and this is an often misconception if you think about it over the longer term the ability to do more training confers that adaptations those changes that enable you to burn more fat and become better fat adapted when they did a study of um I believe it was Ironman athletes. I can't. I think it was Copenhagen. They were measuring their fat max, the ability to the high, the highest essentially amount of fat that they could burn, and they found it correlated really well with performance. I.e., the faster athletes burnt more fat, but that's because the faster athletes were aerobically fitter and were burning more fat because they could burn all fuels better. They could burn more carbohydrates. They could burn more fat, and they could go faster. And that is what we're aiming for. At the end of the day. What we want to do is we want to burn as much fat as we can burn and we need lots of mitochondria for that to keep things aerobic, keep the use of oxygen in those instances and continue to use fat up to a high percentage. What we don't want is that at a very low, and this is what happens often with sedentary people, is that even at a relatively low effort, they might even just be walking or walking up the stairs, they suddenly switch into carbohydrate burning mode because they have very little aerobic fitness and they have a very little they have poor mitochondria and they have an inability to to use that fat up to a high percentage. So if you want to become fat adapted, i.e. burn more fat, then you need to train more or potentially train more intensely, not essentially remove the fat. You actually potentially might need more carbohydrates to add in to enable you to train better that therefore will make you aerobically fitter and burn more fat. So those are the main things that I wanted to focus on during this episode. I hope I haven't waffled on too long. I hope that that's still keeping in, um, in your essentially understanding what I'm, I'm trying to get across. The key is, as those key points, as I said a few times, is that don't be drawn into the fads. Don't be drawn in like I was. And don't... and Try not to, I guess, in a way, rely on what might be your first instincts of, you know, don't, you know, in terms of how you feel, because it, it's unfortunately it's a, it's not real. It's a little bit like drinking. Drinking gives you incredible confidence in your ability to do pretty much everything. We've all seen the videos of what somebody or you know somebody says what they think they were doing, and then we see the video of them being drunk and being a complete fool because from the outside they're not doing that at all they just think they are and unfortunately the ketogenic diet has that a little bit it does make you feel pretty awesome i have to be honest if you want a bit of awesome feeling yeah okay maybe try the ketogenic diet and actually i still occasionally have a little bit of mct in the coffee in the morning because it does give you that that's that brain boost that you get from the ketones and I have used it for writing and things in the morning I tend to I tend to do a lot of my writing and cognitive work relatively early in the morning before I eat I tend to be one of those people that when I eat or I start to eat I get my my kind of I get a little bit of brain fog Um, so I tend to do a lot of my writing between about 6 and 10 in the morning which is just coffee fueled generally sometimes with a little bit of MCT but at the end of the day sport is fueled by carbohydrates and it unless you are doing a sport as i say like long distance running long distance cycling as well if you have gut issues at the end of the day the gut issue ish thing tends to be more running because of the fact that you are running and it becomes more difficult and most people on a bike have no issues eating real food if they are racing so whilst 
you could say for something like Iron Man, potentially, the problem with Iron Man is actually the intensity of an Iron Man bike leg, if you're doing it right, is actually quite intense. You know, you should be around the 70 to 80% up to, you know, the elites are over potentially 80% of FTP for a long period of time. You know, the age groupers at the top end of the field will be at 75-ish percent. And that is already probably too hard to have real food, to digest it properly. So again, you need to go towards the, can I burn more carbohydrates to improve my performance? Thank you again. Thank you very much for listening. If you are interested in getting some coffee, head over to Black Cat Coffee. The Everything's in the show notes. Use the code triathlon10. That will also tell David that you're listening to the show, that you are using the code, and that will hopefully mean that we can keep the code going to get you a little bit of a discount on some fantastic coffee. I definitely recommend if you're into the the slightly more different and fruitier with a little bit of kind of fermented wineness that the Ethiopian um, coke, Yura Chahafe, we're going to go with Yura Chahafe as the way to say it, um, is a really good choice. It's really nice. It tastes very different from what most people will have had coffee before. Definitely isn't the dark roasted. It definitely isn't the coffee bitter, knock your head off type thing. It is subtle, but it has got some incredible... Um, flavor notes that you will probably have not had from coffee before. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.